0: We will be in Matthew 27. You can flip there. To introduce what we're talking about, my wife had a grandfather. He passed away a little while ago. Um, He used to always call me Reverend. He's the only one that can do that. And now he's in heaven, so no one can do that. And I asked him one time, I said, how did you meet Grammy? That was his wife, my wife's grandmother. I always love hearing that story. Like, how did you guys get together? And so my grandfather told me this story. He said, it's World War II. I'm stationed in Hawaii. And there was this couple that set me and a buddy up on a blind date. And so they got all dressed up and they're by the side of the road. They're in Hawaii waiting for this couple to bring their two dates. And so they're just standing there waiting. The sedan pulls up, the couple is in front, and there's these two young ladies in the back seat. And so it pulls up and stops. And my wife's grandfather is not shy. He kind of pushes the other dude away, (laughs) opens the door, puts his head in there, looks at both of them, grabs Grammy, pulls her out of the car and says, this one's mine. I laughed, too, and I looked at my daughters. Never. Don't you ever let someone do that to you. Now, what if grandfather had looked in that car, and instead of grabbing Peggy, he grabbed the other gal? What happens to me in my life? There's no charity. My wife, right? Everything changes based on that one little decision. How crazy is that? Perhaps you've seen the movie. It's called "It's a Wonderful Life." And it's basically that premise, right? George Bailey thinks that his wife, life has been worthless, his little brother's kind of maybe looking more successful than he has been, and so he just wants to die. And then the whole story is, wait a second. George, look how your life has affected this community. No one would have been there to save your brother from drowning. No one would have stopped that prescription from going out and killing that person. No one would have saved the the bank and loan that built those houses that were affordable for other people. Look, your life has been dramatic. It's affected our city. If you haven't seen that movie, if you're young, get it. AFI says it's the number one most inspirational film of all time. That your life matters, that that it affects things. It affects things, right? And you can go even bigger than that. What if George Washington had lost to Britain and there's no America? America how does that change things? There's no Taco Bell and there's no college football, right? We're watching cricket. You ever watch cricket? The name is perfect. Like what? Like Okay. That's just about the same. (laughs) But I think I can up the ante even one from that. What if there was no cross? What if there was no cross of Jesus Christ? What does it look like then? What does the world look like? And I think most of us, we're like George Bailey when it comes to the cross. We don't really realize what a historical, life altering, mission altering, universe altering event the cross actually was, that we underestimate it. Most of us say, oh, yeah. At the cross, my sins were forgiven. Is that true? Yes? Is that it? No. Oh, no way. That what happened on the cross was massive, so much more than that. So here's what we're going to do. We're in Matthew 27, which is the cross. We're going to take two weeks, and we're going to look at the cross. That's what we're going to do. We're going to look at it, and I'm so glad we're inside now. I mean, it's just like God's timing, because outside, I don't think I could do this, because I'm going to get a little theological on you. And outside, we had like 500 vultures. Did you see that on Sunday? Was that just unbelievable? I'm like, what, did they think someone's going to die here? Because they're like right here. Like, there's a lot of them. Someone's got to die. Let's just wait. (laughs) I was like, oh my goodness. Crazy. So we're inside. I think we can handle it. All right. So I'm going to read the account here. And then we're going to talk and kind of jump around to some other passages. So Matthew 11, beginning in verse 32. Matthew 11, excuse me. Matthew 27. <laughs> now that you've found Matthew, go to chapter 27 and look at verse 32. I was wondering why there's so many like, <laughs> what in the world? Matthew 27, 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, They divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right hand and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, You would have destroyed the temple and rebuilt it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now. If he desires him, For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. The crucifixion. On Wednesday, we'll jump into chapter 27, the narrative of it. And it is a brilliant chapter. I call chapters 26 through 28 holy ground. So you're invited this Wednesday at 7 o'clock to have some holy ground. You don't even have to take off your shoes. Actually, please don't take off your shoes. But come in. This is a phenomenal section. We'll talk about that. Here's what I want to do for the next two weeks. We're going to look at the cross. And I think we have boiled it down to one thing when it's really so much more. In fact, I have 11 different things that I think the cross accomplished. It's like a jewel that when you look at it from different angles, it, it it has different facets and each one is, whoa, whoa. Oh, that's, oh my goodness. That's the cross. So I've got 11. I know there's no way I'm going to do all 11 in two weeks. My hope is do two today, maybe four or five next week, and then just intrigue you to look at the other ones. Because each one, if you know it, it does something to you. The Bible says this, that my people perish for lack of knowledge that we don't know what's already been done for us. And because we don't know what's already been done for us, we often make mistakes and do things that are unnecessary. All right? So we're going to look at number one, and it's maybe a thicker one, but i like to begin thick. So it is, it's this word, propitiation. And there's a text for it, and we're we're putting it up, but I'll read it for you. And the text that explains propitiation may be the best, it's found in the God, or the Epistle of First John. I'll read them for you. First John two, verse two. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That is a fantastic verse. What does that mean? He's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world? Whoa. Then chapter 4, verse 10, makes a combination I think is important. 1 John 4, 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The combination there is between propitiation and love. So here's what I say propitiation means. Just to sum it down, it means this no more wrath. That's propitiation. No more wrath. So when you open up that can of worms, you have to then ask this question why is God angry? If we have no more wrath, if that's what propitiation is, then what was God angry about? So pagan religions, they did this. Most pagan religions had this fundamental kind of premise. God is angry, and in order to make him happy, you have to appease him by killing something. So you make some kind of an offering or sacrifice, and it appeases this angry God is that what happened? Was God angry and Jesus had to be slaughtered to appease the anger of God? Well, the wrath of God is a a deep subject and it deserves an hour or a week or a long time. But let me try to phrase what, what, what God's wrath is angry at by telling you the big story of the Bible and then giving you a quick analogy. Okay? So here's the big story of the Bible. God creates. And after every movement of creation, what does He say? It's good. Man, I like what I've done. That's awesome. It's good. And He creates someone. Oh, that is great. Good. You ever create and just be like, man, I really like what I've done here? Yes, God. He's like, I really like what I've done. And He creates and creates and creates. And then at the end of it, this is what God does He goes, I want to share this with somebody. I want to share. My creation with somebody. So he creates humans, Adam, and he creates Eve. And there's something special about Adam and Eve that's distinct from the rest of what God had made. His good creation, he says, you two, you're going to be my image bearers. You guys are going to be my reflectors on earth. What I do through the cosmos, you're going to do on earth. You're going to have dominion, and you're going to rule, and you're going to use creation, and it's going to be Awesome. So you're my image bearers, my reflectors, if you would, to the rest of creation of who I am. And so that's what God does. So he puts Adam and Eve in his good creation. He says, go for it. Now, what, what do Adam and Eve do to God's good creation? They trash it. Let's just put it simple. They trash God's good creation. This thing that they say, oh, it's so good, it's so good, it's so good. They trash it. In fact, they turn it over to somebody. Have you ever had... Something you really loved and you really spent some time on and effort on, somebody trash it? How's that make you feel? Okay, it happened to me. Um, I love Volkswagen buses. I know it's insane and stupid, but I just love them. I think they're cool and they're awesome. I have one right now. I've had a number of them, a bunch of them, but there was one Volkswagen in particular that I poured my resources in. It was a 1965 VW bus. And I bought it. It was a piece of junk, motor blown, just everything wrong with it. And I poured my blood, my sweat, my salary. There's not, they're not cheap to fix. My salary into fixing it. I did all the work myself. Like it was just this, oh, I can't wait. Love my Volkswagen bus. And I had it for less than a year. I'd been driving it to work. I was working as an engineer. Driving to work, just, just loving it, enjoying driving it. And the day after Easter, it was a Monday, and I'm driving from my house down Rogue River Highway to cross over the 7th Street Bridge. And I'm driving along, and I'm coming on that kind of that, that turn there before you hit the, the Mexican restaurant, before you hit the bridge. I'm on that turn, and there's this guy in this Volkswagen wagon, like a big Volkswagen wagon, and it was from Portland. They drive a lot of Volkswagen. Or, did I say Volkswagen? Volvo. They drive a lot of Volvos up there. So there's a, this big Volvo, and, it, and it's going like 10 miles per hour. But I'm thinking, oh, I don't know what he's doing. So I just kept going to my lane, just ready to pass him at the last possible moment. He decides he's going to turn into that glass shop, but I'm in the way. And so he hits the front of my Volkswagen, and then I just kind of careen off his entire Volvo all the way from the front bumper, tore off the rear bumper, and bent the frame of my Volkswagen, launched it up onto the grass. Because a Volvo weighs like 1,000 tons, and a Volkswagen weighs about an ounce. So I lost so I'm up there and I'm like kind of gathering myself like, what? what just happened? And I see him and he's getting out of his car and he's coming over to me. And I still had the Easter glow. So I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to say, bro, hey, we all make mistakes. I get it. Peace to you, but pay for it. Okay. So they have these little slide windows. So, so he's coming over and I slide the window open and I'm ready to do the Christian thing. And I'm looking at him. He looks at me and goes, going pretty fast there, weren't you, kid? I just went, oh, no, oh! oh, I was so ticked. So then I said, I'm not going to be a Christian. I'm going to be a Grants Pass caveman. So what I'm doing now. So I go to open my door, but it was so messed up. My door can open. I'm like, oh, what? So he just turned around and got back in his Volvo. He destroyed my van. And I was mad. In fact, to this day, I don't like Volvos. heavy airbag missiles of destructions, (laughs) right? That's wrath. So God makes this really good spot and he says to Adam and Eve, hey, I love you and I want you to be in there. And what does humanity do? They continually trash his good creation. That's what he does, okay? So the prophets and the prophets, you read them and, and if you don't understand what they're trying to say, they can be like, what are the prophets talking about? And I'm actually thinking about, when we finish Matthew, doing Ezekiel. Now, you may say, why would you want to do Ezekiel? Because he's the weirdest of all the prophets. So if you can do a prophet, just go for the worst one, or the best one in my perspective. So the prophets, if you look at them, the prophets are always saying something. And they're saying this, that God made this good spot, and his desire for humanity was this. He wanted humans to be, it's the Hebrew word, mishpat. In English, it's often translated Justice. I want humanity to be mizpot, just justice. And then the other word that they use all the time is this it's sadakah or righteousness. I want humanity to be righteous and just. Righteousness, that word sadakah, it means this it means I want you to flourish. I want you to be in shalom with other people. I want you to be in shalom with me. I want you to flourish. All right, justice. We know what that means, but it's even more than that. It's not just doing what is just. Mizpah meant this. You actually help the weak and the poor and the disadvantaged. That's, that's, you're my image bearers. You're reflecting me, and that's what I do. I live in shalom, and I help the weak and the poor, and that's what I want you to be doing. But what happens is humanity does not do that. They are not Mizpah or Sadakah. So you can read Isaiah 5 as the best example of this because it uses both these terms. And then it says, because you have not been sadakah and mizpah, you instead have been idolatrous and unjust. Those are the twin sins of the Old Testament. That's trashing humanity. You have not been righteous. You've been unrighteous. You have not been just. You've been unjust. And because of that, here's what the prophets say. Because of that, God's anger is coming. Because you have trashed, his creation, God's wrath is coming. What does that mean for me? What does that mean for us? Have you ever hurt or trashed God's creation? I'm not talking about you taking out the crate myrtle in front of your house. That is God's creation, but it's not the pinnacle. When God talks about his creation, the pinnacle, it's humanity. We are his Volkswagen Boss. We're the top, Right? Have you ever trashed other human beings? Have you ever been unjust or unright to them? Have you ever gossiped? Have you ever taken from God's daughters what did not belong to you? Have you ever texted something or bullied someone? Has your greed driven you to such a place that you step on other people to get what you want? Has that happened to you? Because God would say, You're trashing my creation. Have you ever sat and thought about how you treated that person in the seventh grade and how wrong it was? I have. I have. Has the weight of that kind of, oh, I can feel that weight. Can you imagine how a dad would feel if you treated their child the way that you've treated people? Okay. That's God's wrath. So here's propitiation. No more. No more. Jesus, his propitiation has taken care of that. So on the cross, God reveals the heart of the father. Jesus reveals the heart of the father and revealing this, that the father wants to take away his wrath and forgive us for our pig pen wallowing, mud slinging lifestyle and to propitiate the wrath that we built up against us. And so Romans 5.1 says this, now therefore we have peace with God. Five of the best words in the Bible. Now therefore what? Well, read chapters one through four. Why? This case being built about Jesus and his work. Now therefore you and I have peace with God. How brilliant is that? Propitiation. So here's how this, this, this changes the way we look at life. It means this, God's not mad at you. Do you know that? Like one of the big struggles you read throughout history, one of the big struggles is people always think God's mad at them. Guess what propitiation means? No more wrath. God is not mad at you. In the place of God's anger, you and I get his peace. So John 3, 36 puts it like this. Those that believe in the Son are given life, age-abiding life. Those that do not believe in the Son, the wrath of God abides on them still. For those of us who have believed in Jesus Christ, there is no more wrath. So here's what you know. You know if something hard happens or something difficult happens to you, it is not God punishing you and it is not God angry at you because that was taken care of on the cross. You and I are free now from God's wrath. Praise the Lord. That's jewel number one. And it is brilliant. God's not angry at you because of the cross. Number two, number two, the second one we're going to do, it's this word redemption. All right? There's the text. I'll read it for you. It's Titus 2, 13 and 14. Jewel number two says this about the cross. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a definitive verse for the divinity of Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possessions who are zealous for good works. Jewel number two, redemption. Now, what does redemption mean? There is an idea that says this, that we get our idea or our theology of redemption from the first century slave market that there were these slave traders who would have these slaves and then people would go and they would redeem the slave from that slave market and purchase them out and set them free. Okay? Is that biblical redemption? If it is, the question then becomes, who did God pay to redeem us from? So before you and I were believers, if, if that's the thing, who did we belong to? Who was our daddy? Jesus answers it. It's John chapter eight. First he says, verse 36, you're slaves to sin. And then right after that, verse 44, he says this. You are of your father, the devil, who is a liar has always been a liar. Okay? Or you can look at 1 John three 10. I'll read it for you. Where it starts to tell us, you start to see this picture being developed. 1 John three ten says this. I'll back up one verse. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep sinning because he has born of, been born of God. Verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not Love his neighbor. Two groups there, right? Sons of God, children of God, children of the devil. I'll read one more for you. It's Colossians. Colossians 1 is one of my favorite counseling texts in the entire Bible. I go to this one all the time. Listen to verse 13. He has, past tense, he has, past tense, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Marvelous, unbelievable text. What you see though is this. You see two kingdoms in the Bible and people belong to one or the other. You're in one, there is no neutral ground. You're either in the kingdom of light or you are in the kingdom of darkness, okay? So if we go to the Greek model of redemption, then then we, before we believe in Jesus, we belong to the kingdom of darkness, to the devil. So does God have to pay the devil some kind of a ransom, some kind of a redemption price in order to buy us out? Is that how it works? Because that seems strange, doesn't it? He's got to paint off the devil to redeem you and me. Greek slave market analogy. Well, if you like C.S. Lewis, and I really like him, if you've ever watched or read The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, that's exactly the model he talks about there, is it not? That Edmund, because of his sin, now belongs to the white witch, and in order for Edmund to get transferred back out of the white witch's domain into Aslan's domain, what has to happen to Aslan? has to pay with his life. So Lewis was that kind of a model, all right? Now, I love Lewis, but we do not live in Narnia. My goats have not talked to me. If they do, I'll be on YouTube and I'll make a lot of money. So what is the right one? Here's here's a Bible principle. I don't go to first century culture to try to find out what Bible authors were talking about. You know where I go? I go to the Old Testament. I think 99 out of 100 times the correct analogy is not found in first century Greek culture. The correct analogy is found in God's revelation that you can find it. So when I think about redemption, what is the big story in the Bible about redemption? Any guess? Exodus, right? You have... The people there, in fact, you can read Exodus 6.6 where God says, I'm redeeming, uses that word, my people out from Pharaoh. So you have Pharaoh, this wicked king of darkness, if you would, genocidal, killing babies, enslaving women, defeating people. You've got the wicked Pharaoh who refuses to allow God's people to go. No, in fact, he makes their life more and more miserable taskmasters will take away your straw. You still have to do as much work. We're going to beat you and kill you. And I will not let them go. They're mine. I'm keeping them. Okay? So what happens? God shows up. Here's the prayers of his people. And God begins to demonstrate to Pharaoh who's God, right? It's Exodus 7, 5. I'm going to do this stuff. So Pharaoh and all of Egypt knows Yahweh is the God. And so nine different times God says, look it, look it, it's me. I believe that it's his grace and mercy trying to get through to a very hard person. Look it, it's me. Even his own magicians say what? This is the hand of God, bro. (laughs) Relent, he will not. And so finally, the last thing is the Passover lamb is slaughtered. And in that slaughter, the people are set free and released from that kingdom That Pharaoh, and they're brought into a new land, right? That to me is a story of redemption. Isn't that the story of Jesus? Totally is. Does God ever pay off Pharaoh? Does he pay Pharaoh? No. Nine times he comes in grace. The tenth time, and here's my phrase: he punches Pharaoh in the mouth. Right? Nine times, I'll be graceful to you, and I'll be graceful to you, and I'll be, and I'm gonna show you, I'm gonna show you. Okay, justice. You killed babies. You have not repented. Now you get punched in the face. And God brings his people out. He does not pay a payment. I do not believe there's any payment made to the devil. That redemption is you and I being set free. And that's what Jesus does. He comes, he does miracles that demonstrate he is God. Over and over, I am God. And then he is slaughtered as a Passover lamb to set you and me free from that kingdom of darkness, from that, translating us out. So the New Testament says this, we have been redeemed, number one, from dark powers, Colossians 1. It says, number two, we have been redeemed from the curse of the law, Galatians 3.13. It says, number three, that we've been redeemed, Romans 6, from our sinful flesh. And then lastly, Galatians says, we've been redeemed from death into life. That's redemption. Well, what does that matter to me? Here's how, let me apply this and then we're done. Here's how it works for you and me. Jesus, through redemption, brings us into his family, into his kingdom, right? We're no longer in that kingdom. We're in a brand new kingdom. So the grip of the enemy on you and me has been broken. He has no authority over us. He has no hold on us. We can march out free from his captivity he will continue to do this to us. He'll continue to lie to us. And here's where redemption is so important. If you read Genesis chapter 3, here's what you get. The serpent lies, causes problems, God shows up and there's a very fascinating little thing that takes place. God shows up and he says this, "Who told you that you were naked? I created you this way. Who's lying to you? Who's giving you this naked identity?" When I do counseling with people all the time, and they'll tell me things, and you know what I say very often? I say the same thing God says. Who told you that? Who told you that kind of person? Because we've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness, but guess what he does all the time? He lobs over these lies at us. And when we believe those lies, he gets power over us. That's what happens. And to men, the lie is this. What I've noticed in counseling, almost always the lie to men is this. You're incompetent. If people only knew what an incompetent fool you were, they would be done with you. I hear that lie all the time in men because men most desperately know we are designed to be competent. And so when we hear that lie and we believe it, man, it devastates us. To women, it's a very different lie. I've noticed this almost always revolves around love. You're damaged goods. No one's gonna love you if they knew what kind of person you were, what you've done in your past, you would never be loved. Even if you get married, you're still going to be alone in that marriage because you're too damaged to ever open up to a relationship. That's what you are. And those lies, lobbed from the kingdom of darkness, what they do is they get power on us. So I always ask, who told you that? Because it is not the Bible. It takes no faith to believe the lies of a demon. None whatsoever. And they are whispered to us all the time. And so redemption means this for you and me. Uh-uh. I don't have to believe that stuff. I'm believing what the Bible says about me. Men, the Bible says, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. That's what I'm believing. Not I'm an incompetent fool. That's a lie of a demon. women, the Bible says that you are wrapped in the garment of praise, that you are a spotless bride before King Jesus. That's what the Bible says. You say, I'm not believing that. I'm believing what the Bible says about me. It's that. It's over and over. So we apply redemption knowing I don't belong to this kingdom anymore. I've been set free. I'm going to start living like a free person. But then even more than that, redemption means this. It's, it's Romans 6, that we've been redeemed from this sinful flesh. We've been redeemed from our brokenness, from our laziness, from the fact that we lose our mouths and we're jerks to our wives and harsh on our kids, and we can't seem to forgive people, and we're plagued by bitterness, and we're addicted to pornography and addicted to drugs and addicted to garbage. The Bible says, you've been set free from that, that Romans 6, that old you was nailed to a cross. And it's been katageo, paralyzed. It has no power over you anymore unless you allow it. And so you say, no, I've been redeemed. I've been redeemed. And the old me was nailed to a cross and there's a brand new me that's been raised into the life of Jesus Christ. Read Romans chapter six. That's what this means. Like the cross is radical. It's radical. No more wrath. Instead, peace. Number two, no more puppet, no more slavery, you've been set free. It means both of those things and so much more. So when we come to the table in one minute, and when you take the bread and when you take the cup, I want you to think about those two things. And perhaps this last week or this last month or your life, you've struggled with God's wrath. You felt the weight of his anger at you. Drink peace. Drink Romans 5.1. Therefore, we have peace with God. God's not mad at you. Maybe you've been believing the lies of the enemy. I think God would ask you this day, who told you that? I didn't tell you that. That's not how I think of you. That's not the life I have for you. Who told you that? You're not naked. Who told you that? You're not incompetent. Who told you that you're unlovely who told you that and drink and eat of his great love that he has redeemed you from that kingdom and brought you into his and if you're one of his kids don't you know he's going to take care of you don't you know his plans and purposes for you are unbelievable that eye has not seen and ear has not heard the wonderful things that god has in store for you you eat and you drink those things and so father I thank you for the cross. Forgive me for making it small. Forgive me for minimizing it to just the forgiveness of my sins, as wonderful and beautiful as that is, it's so much more. It opened up a new creation, a new life, a new world for each one of us. That's what the cross has done. I pray as we partake, I ask, Lord God, that you would do the intangible work flushing out the lies of the enemy that so many of us believe and replacing it with the truth of your scriptures and the truth of your son and the work of the cross. And we would drink forgiveness and we would eat power and we'd go from here knowing there's no more wrath, and we have been set free. Pharaoh has no hold on us anymore. We're kids of the king, headed for the promised land. May we know those things, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.